Say what you want about Apple's product rollout events, but they seem to be working for customers and shareholders. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joining me from Colorado, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Tim Byers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, fully caffeinated, ready to go here, Chris. Let's talk about Apple's event. And there are a few things we can get to. We'll get to the phones themselves in a second, but um, I was struck by the focus on fitness and the new high-end Apple Watch, which is aimed squarely at uh, serious outdoor athletes, marathon runners, all, all that sort of thing. Um, what did you make of the continued push into that area? Which you can you can make the argument that the the high end watch for the out the really outdoor people that's a niche market, but but it seemed to sync up with what Apple has been doing for a few years now in terms of the overall push into health and fitness. Absolutely. I mean, this is a digital lifestyle company now. Let's be clear about that. This was a hardware company that was also a design company. Now that design has seeped into living. So Apple is trying to orchestrate and serve your digital lifestyle. And so I think the interesting piece of this, Chris, is less so. Certainly, the watch is an interesting showpiece, for sure, and it's it's incredibly impressive. More important, is Fitness Plus going to 21 countries at $9.99 a month? If that does not scare the bejesus out of the folks at Peloton, then I don't know. I mean, they're braver than I am, because that is that that's a real gauntlet being thrown. And what it suggests to me, Chris, is that the Apple strategy is, yes, it is to sell more hardware, but the growth strategy is to serve more parts of your life. Apple is intending to become an ever-present, always-on servant of your lifestyle, it's kind of the digital companion. And that can be via the watch, it can be via the phone, it can be via your computer, it can be via your entertainment options on Apple TV. But all of this is sort of like Apple becoming surround sound in in our lives. And so, yes, it, it does continue things, but I think it's bigger than health and fitness, Chris. Yeah, the, the price point uh, for Fitness Plus Reminds me of when they launched their video streaming service. Sure, at at four ninety nine a month, and and right. I just thought, oh right, when you have all of the cash in the world on your balance sheet, you can afford to to do that sort of thing. In terms of the iPhone fourteen, four new versions uh, of the phone rolled out, and congratulations for, uh, uh, to anyone who was betting on incremental upgrades. If you if you had that on your bingo card. Uh, you won because that's that's, uh, and and I'm not knocking them for it. That's that's yeah. what we've come to expect more of in these events, and it looks like we got it. Yeah, you you almost imagine that there were people out there watching the event 
and there was you know it was like the bob newhart drinking game incremental upgrade take a drink you know like there is um yes for sure they are incremental upgrades better camera more storage better battery life all the things we've come to expect multiple handsets price is not going down not going up but not going down so continuing to serve a very premium product but again apple does not need to win new customers what apple needs is i mean yes they do but really what they need is for you to see you and i to see the iphone as the indispensable must-have device that helps orchestrate our life because that's what it is that's what it is right now it's our pocket computer that helps us orchestrate our life we do banking with it we do entertainment with it we do communications with it it is ever present for us it helps us unlock doors we get two-factor authentication you know type of alerts it helps us it, it does so many things it's like a life assistant and so really where this lives what where this apple lives for apple is like they need you to believe that in order to be a participant in modern society you need an iphone and so far i think they're succeeding in convincing us that we need that now to be fair you know that there's a cohort of people who don't say you need an iPhone, you need a smartphone. And those people are Android users. But still, there's a massive cohort of iPhone users. And what Apple really needs is for them to not unplug. They need to get them deeper into the ecosystem. And I think this helps with that. As you mentioned, they did not raise the price of the, uh, the latest and greatest version of the iPhone. Here in the United States, in other countries, uh, the price is going up. That's I'm, true, yes. I, I'm yep. curious if you think, uh, how much do you think that was debated behind closed doors? Because I could, I can see the argument in the same way like we just talked about with Fitness Plus. Hey, look, we don't have to charge a lot for this. We just want to get people adopting Fitness Plus. And right. somewhere down the line, if we feel like we need to bump up the price, we can. I'm wondering if the way inflation has dominated the headlines this entire calendar year, if that was the part of the conversation behind closed doors. Look, we want to get people moving into the iPhone 14, and we don't need to raise prices this time around. Yes, and you're right that it, it did vary by country. And let's be clear, so does inflation, by the way. In other countries around the world, inflation is much hotter. Than, than it is here. And historically, that has been true. So, how much of a debate was this? I don't know. But I think your illustration of the strategy is right. That what we really want is to get you an on-ramp to the Apple superhighway and get you cruising, the wind blowing in your hair, so you want to stay on that highway and enjoy the view for as long as humanly possible because the longer you're on that highway the more profitable you are to apple as a customer particularly if you are a services customer like and and that's an increasing portion of apple's business in fact it's one of the biggest 
you know, fastest growing portions of Apple business. And so Fitness Plus will be a part of that. Apple TV subscriptions will be a part of that. But more importantly, iCloud, music, you know, and, and other books and other types of entertainment. There's a lot of very high margin revenue that Apple can get if it keeps you on, you know, cruising on that super highway. So, yeah, I do think there was a debate about let's see about keeping people where they are and maybe if we can incrementally convince some people to kind of make the jump to the next version, let's see if we can do that by keeping prices stable. Uh, one price that did not say stable was the uh, price of the newest uh, version of the AirPods. Yeah, two hundred two hundred fifty bucks. That's uh, that's a, that's a high real. end. That's a high end listening device they've just rolled out there. Yeah, that's for real. And they touted, and sometimes Apple does this. Sometimes they do tout some of the innovations they have. They talked about sort of pairing one of the more interesting things. I forget exactly what they call it here. Let me look at this. They call it the spatial audio, personalized spatial audio. So you use your iPhone to kind of give a sense of what your personalized space is and helps measure this with your iPhone. And then the AirPods learn from that. There's a chip on board those AirPods. And so the way that it delivers sound to you is sort of tailored to your personal space. I don't get the nuance here of exactly how this works, Chris, but I do find it fascinating that once again, here is a Apple device that is made better by another Apple device. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking that there would be multiple Apple devices involved in this, right? I mean, so, yes, I, I predict that this will not be a massive seller, but there will be people who want it and want the highest end. And if it gets a little bit of a foothold, we're going to see more of this. You'll see a next generation of it, and it'll be more and more interesting as it grows. Tim Cook has had a busy week, not just because of his involvement in this event, but he also appeared at the Vox Media Code Conference mm. in California. Um, he did an interview on stage, and he was, I want to set the stage here uh, for listeners, um, because he was asked about the relationship between iOS and Android, and, and specifically texting between iPhones, and because iPhones use iMessage, um, Android right. phones, when they text the iPhone, it's SMS messaging, it shows up as a green bubble. And right. Google is pressuring Apple to adopt RCS, which is essentially a next-gen replacement for SMS messaging. And Cook basically said, you know, this is not something we're spending a lot of time on because it's not a priority for iPhone users. And when he was pressed by the interviewer who said, you know, I can't send videos to my mom because of the limitations of SMS messaging, Cook said, well, you should buy your mom an iPhone. <laughs> and I, I got to say, uh, I, I'm sure there are some people who may view that as sort of a, a flippant response. Um, uh, to me, that's a CEO who's talking his own book. Right. And you know what that, you know who that sounds like? Steve Jobs. Yeah. That sounds like Steve Jobs. We forget, like, I, I don't buy the argument that the Tim Cook Apple is like, 
a, a watered-down version of the Steve Jobs Apple. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It looks different. That's true. It looks different. But can we just for a moment recognize that Steve Jobs and Tim Cook work together really, really well because Tim Cook at his job and operations at Apple was a stone-cold assassin. He was a stone-cold assassin. And as CEO, he is also really clear that he wants to build an Apple ecosystem that is fitting with the vision that Jobs always had. So these two may be different people, but in how they go about their business, I think they're very, very similar. And that's that's probably one of those rare instances where a diplomatic man like Tim Cook sort of revealed a little bit of those, you know, it was kind of a Walter White moment. Who do you think you're talking to? It was one of those. Tim Byers, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Up next, Jason Moser and Matt Frankel have a medium dive on a small cap holding company, Boston Omaha. Hey, Matt, great to catch up with you again. This week, we wanted to dig in a bit more on a company that I think many listeners have probably heard of. Maybe they don't know. Um, as much about it as they'd like to, which is why we're here today. We're talking about Boston Omaha, and uh, this is an interesting business from a number of different angles. Uh, so, so I think first and foremost, let's just go ahead and start with what the company actually does, because again, this this is a bit of a diversified business, a bit of a unique um, unique business model. So, so what what does Boston Omaha do? Yeah, so this is going to sound like a really weird answer, but Boston Omaha itself doesn't do anything. It's a holding company. Hmm. So, Boston Omaha, right now, they have what do they hold? They hold a lot of cash. They have four major business lines. They have a billboard subsidiary uh, operated under the name Link Media that has about 7,500 billboard faces. It's got an insurance business uh, under the brand name General Indemnity. They operate in the surety insurance industry. Uh, they have a broadband internet business with about 43,000 subscribers that they've invested heavily in lately that operates mostly in rural areas. And last but not least, probably the most exciting part of the company is Boston Omaha Asset Management um, that has a bunch of different kind of, they have minority investments, they have a built for rent homes business that's just kind of building out, they're raising outside capital for some of their opportunities they see. And it's just a really exciting part of the business, and they like they have a bunch of cash on the balance sheet. They also own common stocks, uh, primarily in two companies. They have a big stake in Dreamfinders Homes, another public company, and they also took uh, Sky Harbor Public by SPAC uh, during the big SPAC boom. Because why not? It was 2021. <laughs> um, so they also have a that was their actual largest investment to date. They have a pretty big stake in that one. So you've got billboards, which essentially that's advertising. You've got insurance, and you've got asset management, and you've got internet. So very a very uh, wide range, right? A, an interesting cross section of of revenue generators. But but I guess ultimately leading into this next question, how does it make money? It, it feels like they they make their money 
really a number of different ways. Um, is is there is there a part of the business that is responsible for the lion's share of the revenue today for this holding company? For most of its history, it's been billboards. But it's really interesting that you say that it's kind of like an interesting collection of businesses. But they all have yeah. one big thing in common: they all have great economics. They're not high. They don't have high overhead. The the just uh, the billboard business, for example, ninety nine percent of their billboards are static, not the new digital ones that everyone else is investing in. Oh. And the reason is because the overhead on those is just six percent of revenue. That's a fantastic gross margin, ninety four percent. Um, broad, the broadband business has gross margins in the 90% range because once they build out the wireless infrastructure, there's almost no ongoing costs. Yeah. So the kind of common denominator between all their businesses, Sky Harbor included, they build out these aviation terminals, but then and rent out the space. But on an ongoing basis, there's almost no investment required. So it's it's a, a, yes, a diverse collection of businesses and investments, but with that same kind of like target on low ongoing capex. So I feel. I mean, you you and I have talked about this business before. I mean, going going back years ago with with industry focus when we were doing that show, and and I feel like I feel like this is this is a business that has evolved a little bit over time. I mean, I think for the most part we knew of it as billboards and um, the surety business. So it it feels like this is they continue to tack on new lines of business and ultimately you know ultimately to build this business out is is that is that what's going on I mean because I don't know that the asset management wing of the business really I'm not sure it existed if it did it didn't seem like it was material and and I would say the same for the broadband at least it seems like the broadband is becoming a bit more um, central to the story than it was than it than it's been historically. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack in that. But they, um, in the the asset management business, they started it for a few reasons. Their minority investments were all just kind of held separately under under the the big holding company at first, and they ended up running into trouble with the Investment Company Act of 1940. That's they had to sell off a bunch of their Dreamfinders homes because it was just kind of like a separate business uh, under their banner. Right. So they, um, it prevents them from future stock sales like that. And number two, and most importantly. Uh, they said this at their recent uh, annual meeting. They're fine for the first time in their history. They're starting to see more opportunities than they have money. So the asset wow. management structure allows them to raise outside capital for these individual opportunities. And there's two examples: uh, the built for rent homes business. They're putting in about ten million dollars. They're trying to raise about a hundred million of outside capital to be able to build that out quickly. So not only do they get their own $10 million investment making money, but they could get performance fee income on that other $100 million if they deliver for their investors. Uh, in the broadband business, they're partnering with home builders. And check out the economics of this business. What they're doing is they're partnering with home builders to build at construction the fiber infrastructure for internet into the homes. And it's paid out of the, the HOA dues for a period of at least 10 years. So they pay about two thousand dollars per home to put this in. They get sixty dollars in guaranteed monthly revenue at ninety percent margins for ten years. Um, obviously, there's a lot of demand for this. Um, there's, they have over fifteen thousand homes in the backlog and don't have enough capital. So they're aiming to raise five hundred million dollars to build out the broadband. They see this as a huge opportunity. Um, so that's five hundred million dollars of investor money. They could be generating fee income for them if they deliver for their investors. It, there's an old saying in investing that the the best way to make money is with other people's money. You know, you're not risking <laughs> you're not risking any of your own capital. You just get fees. 
So um, the, the asset management business allows them to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I do like that. Uh, best way to make money is <laughs> other people's money, um, and it seems like that's what they're doing now. When you you look at this business, we want to talk about competitive advantages, and I feel like the competitive advantage side of the conversation lines up also with the leadership side of the conversation here, because ultimately, the more and more we dig into this business, the more and more it sounds like at least part of the thesis or at least part of the advantage is the investing acumen of leadership right i mean this is at least in part a jockey play so you've got a co-ceo situation with alex rosick and adam peterson um you mentioned i mean they don't have enough capital for the opportunities they see they're going to be raising more money obviously still a small company at 750 million dollars uh, or so market cap I, am i am i on the on the right path there i mean do you consider this a jockey play more than anything else or is there another competitive advantage that i'm missing well yeah and there um i mean as you've probably heard boston omaha gets a lot of comparisons to an early stage berkshire yeah, um, because you know, not only do they invest in a bunch of different businesses, uh, Alex Rosick is actually Warren Buffett's grandnephew, yeah. um, and they've they've specifically said they're modeling this after after Berkshire to a to some extent. But one of Warren Buffett's big investing mentalities is our plan is to find the 400 hitters and then not try to teach them how to swing. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the two co CEOs. They're doing a great job of hiring the right leaders for each of those individual businesses and kind of just letting them run with it. Yeah, um, they just hired somebody for the fiber, the uh, fiber home builder uh, partnership. That I, I mean, and he's just running with it. It's it's his business. So yes, it is a, a management play, but they're using kind of the the Buffett mentality of decentralized management. In that Warren Buffett doesn't control any of the sixty businesses that Berkshire owns on a on a day to day basis. The only reason he steps in is if one of the CEOs is doing something wrong. Yeah, um, and that's kind of the mentality they take. They're they're capital allocators. They're they're not they're not billboard executives. They're not insurance experts. They're not asset management experts. Even they're 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 capital allocators, and that's kind of how they see them. That well, I like that. You know, I think that's that's a, those are fun businesses to invest in because you're kind of you're investing right alongside investors, and, and clearly there's a blueprint out there in in Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, even to an extent, a company like Markel, we would say, follows this playbook to a degree. So then, when you look at a business like this and you think about the risks involved for investors. I mean, again, to me, and you said it. I mean, this is a management team that really they try to do the hard work up front and making sure that they're making the right investments with the right leadership, and then letting that leadership go do their thing. Um, feels to me like one of the one of the more obvious risks with a business like this is if Boston Omaha leadership becomes a little overconfident, perhaps, in their ability and, and starts trying to micromanage or or control more than perhaps they should. Yeah, and I mean, one great example is that built for rent homes business. One of the reasons they're doing that is there's a there's no shortage of companies doing built for rent housing these days. But what they're doing is they go to a home builder like Dreamfinders or a Dr. Horton or one of those, and they buy homes from them and then rent them out. Now those home builders charge a twenty to twenty five percent markup on their homes. Right. So uh, Boston Omaha, their plan is to build the homes themselves. You know, act as their own general contractor. They're going to hire somebody to get in there who knows how to build houses. It's and that's a, that is a big risk factor. It's if if Alex and Adam decide to tell them how to build houses, 
<laughs> you know, that's, I mean, that would be like me going out to my, you know, when I had a pool put in, me going out to the contractor and telling him what to do, what he was doing wrong. Yeah. I'm not going to do that because that's not my wheelhouse. Yep. My wheelhouse is to allocate my capital to how I want my yard to look and then let them run with it. <laughs> and it's kind of the same thing here. Um, that's a great cost advantage by building houses yourself um, if you could partner with the right person. If you get the right person in charge who knows how to supervise the construction of, they want to initially build out 154 houses. It takes a level of expertise to be able to coordinate that. Yeah. So if they get the right person in there, that's a huge cost advantage over all these other companies doing built for rent housing. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting to think about. And you wonder if if, if Alex ever ever has any conversations with with uh warren about this stuff you know trying trying to learn lessons uh glean some glean some some of his experience um let's let's wrap this conversation up ultimately with where you stand on this business today because when you look at the stock you know it seems it seems like it could be considered as sort of a defensive um, stock, given what they do, I mean, you look at the the performance year to date. I mean, it's at, it's had a tough year to date. I mean, this thing stocks down something like ten percent, but it's outperforming the market. But you stretch that out over to over over a five year uh, time horizon, there, and the stock has stock has performed very well. It's up seventy one percent and outperforming the market. Um, where where do you stand on this stock today? Is it one that you like? Is is it one that you've got your eye on? It seems like it seems like you you're kind of glass half full where this one's concerned. Well, it's 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 my it's my second largest investment to, to answer right. that question. So then, glass three quarters uh, but, full. <laughs> but having said that, I don't view it as I, I view them as low risk businesses, but not a low risk stock. If that makes sense. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, that, and Boston Omaha kind of went like meme stockish about a year ago. Uh, you know, it just got rocketed up to about fifty dollars a share and went like parabolic for a little while. It's going to be a lot more of a roller coaster ride in the early stages than like a Berkshire Hathaway or Markel. If it was easy to build a $700 billion conglomerate like Warren Buffett has, anybody would do it. There's a ton yeah. of execution risk. Um, and like you said, the, the, the downside to having a bunch of different businesses is any one of them can go wrong. Um, so, you know, if the billboard business starts going wrong, that's a risk factor. If the insurance business starts, you know, so I, I view them as individually as all low risk businesses, but in the aggregate, I wouldn't call this a low risk stock at this point. But the risk reward to me makes a whole lot of sense, which is why I own a lot of it. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Matt, it's been a pleasant conversation. It's always fun catching up with you. Thanks for digging into this one for us, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. All right. Always happy to be here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.